Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's what these guys are for. So raise your hand and he'll be glad to uh, hand one to you. And it should be marked in the text that we're going to be discussing this morning. Mark chapter 10. I was sitting there with Erica trying to make sure that my uh, ear mic is, is adjusted properly this time. It fell last time and Zach made fun of me <laughs> in his sermon. And it's not a coincidence that my sermon is about pride this morning. <laughs> Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be looking at. If you ask anyone to give you a definition of worldliness, it is no doubt at some point going to include a list of things that are worldly and things that are not. Worldliness, we might think of defining it as the fallen or sinful values of a culture. So not everything that we think and not everything that we do has to be completely different from the world. We're not necessarily supposed to be Amish or feel like we're supposed to totally separate ourselves from the world. But there is an element of the world that is sinful. It values sinful, fallen, wrong things. And if you ask anyone to give you a definition of worldliness, it is no doubt going to include a list. My wife Erica was at a Bible study one time where someone asked, you know, what is worldliness? And one dear older lady defined worldliness as uh, dancing, playing cards, and going to the movie theater. Now, I'll leave it to you to decide whether those things are worldly or not. That's not the point of why we're here this morning. Lists can be a good thing. They're, they give us some sort of 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 way to measure ourselves against scripture and try to strive to live holy lives. But we have to be cautious in our use of lists. And the reason we have to be cautious in our use of lists is because that we can use lists to create for ourselves a standard of morality that is altogether outward and attainable. Because if you're making the list your tendency is going to be, in some ways, to make a list that you can complete. And if you're making a list, and if somehow you've got 10, 12, 20 things on your list, you have a reasonable chance of fulfilling those things. Possibly. You can do all that stuff. And you can have a standard of morality for yourself that doesn't go another level past purely the level of behavior. That the morality that lists often address is outward morality. But the place lists <clears throat> have trouble is in matters, matters of the heart. Patterns of illicit thinking values, things that we love, 
are things that lists often can't address. Let me give you an example. Pride. Pride is one of those things that hasn't made it on most people's worldliness lists. It's just the dancing and the playing cards and whatever. Pride doesn't often make it on those lists. But pride is one of those things that is rooted in the furthest, darkest reaches of our heart. And unfortunately, we as Christians can feel at times as if we're doing quite well with our list, thank you, because we're not doing A, B, and C. While we are worldly to the very core of our being because of our hearts. Pride is one of those things that lives in our hearts. And James chapter 4, verses 4 to 6 says this about pride, and it connects it with worldliness. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible here connects friendship with the world with a proud heart and says that God is actively opposed to people who regard pride in their hearts. Pride is one of those things that's so easy for us to identify in other people, isn't it? We all know conceited people that are in our lives and it's so easy for us to identify it in them, but it's much harder to see in ourselves. We've all been around people who are conceited, who are braggadocious, who are obviously filled with pride, and in our rush to condemn them, we find ourselves falling into the very trap that they are in. We start becoming proud for not being as proud as they are. That's pride having its roots deep down in our hearts. And so my intent this morning in the message and looking at this uh, section of scripture from Mark chapter 10 is to surface the pride that may be hidden in our hearts. This isn't something that's easy to do. And my intent this morning isn't to do so so that we all walk out of here feeling guilty. Because I want to address pride with the hope of the gospel. And I want to just say from you, to you from the outset that I don't talk about pride this morning with you as if pride wasn't a problem in my own heart. Quite the contrary. Pride is probably something that I struggle with more than anything. And you may say, why? <laughs> and I would say, good point. <laughs> But seriously, whether we have anything to be proud about or not, from other people's perspectives, we all struggle with pride, and I do. And I struggle with my motivations for anything that I do. I struggle at the level of motivations for why I do it. Do I do it because I love God and because I seek glory? 
his glory or do I do it because I seek my own? That's a struggle that I deal with. And so in our attempts to expose the pride in our hearts this morning, I'm exposing myself. In fact, I had to stop this week, one evening, while I was studying this and think, you are, you are talking about, you're writing things down on a computer screen that are going to apply pride to other people. Are you applying it to yourself? So I want you to know that as we, as we talk about this this morning. But we're going to examine a portion of scripture in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, verses 35 to 45. And as you can see in the outline that's provided for you, the overarching theme of what we're going to be discussing this morning is this. Pride meets its end in the gospel. Pride meets its end in the gospel. Let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45 together. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? Are we baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, you must first, whoever wants to become great among you, you must great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is an ugly moment between Jesus and his disciples. In fact, one would think that as Mark, the author of this gospel, thought this portion might have hit the the editing room floor. But it didn't. Because it's instructive to us. And it shows us, in a stark way, the, the boldness and the brazenness of pride that not only is in the disciples' hearts, but can be in our hearts as well. Let me bring you up to speed very quickly on where we're at in the book of Mark. One person has called the book of Mark a drama in three acts, three acts to the book of Mark. The first act runs from the first chapter through chapter 8 in verse 30. And it's about Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. It ends in verse 30 with Peter's recognition of Jesus as Christ, the divine Messiah. Act 2 starts in chapter 8 in verse 31 and goes until chapter 10 in verse 52. 
And in Act 2, it chronicles the journey of Jesus and his disciples to Jerusalem. Act 3 is the events that take place in Jerusalem from chapter 11 through the end of the book that include Jesus' triumphal entry and then his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're, the por- portion of scripture that we're looking at this morning is the second act in the book of Mark. And there are three markers in the second act uh, that, the, that Mark, the author, uses to try to demonstrate what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do. Jesus tries to prepare his disciples and the readers, as we read the book, are being prepared, that Jesus isn't going to Jerusalem to be received as a king. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. And so in verse 31 of chapter 8, Jesus tries to tell his disciples that. And Peter actually rebukes him for doing so. Then in chapter 9 in verse 31, he tells them again that he's going to die, that he's going to be buried, that he's going to be in the ground for three days, and then he's going to return to life. Again, the scriptures say that they're confused, they're, they're, they, they don't understand what he's saying, and, and the scripture says that they're afraid to ask him to get an explanation. They're, they're still not getting it. And then as you can see in the passage that we just read, Jesus promises again that when they get to Jerusalem, it's not going to be the party that they're expecting. He talks about dying and giving his life as a ransom for many. So at a time when Jesus is discussing matters of life and death with them, literally discussing matters of life and death with them, they are preoccupied with something entirely different. They are preoccupied with their own agenda. They are occupied with themselves. And so I want us to look and see the pride, the manifestations or the symptoms of pride that manifest themselves in the statements that, that James and John make to Jesus in this passage. I want us to see ourselves in them. And then I want us to apply the gospel to our hearts. What are the symptoms of pride that we see here in Mark chapter 10? Well, pride, first of all, is self-centered. Pride is being self-centered. And the question that that the disciples ask Jesus is this. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) What? You know, we've been traveling with you for around for a while, Jesus, and just got a little request. Hey, could you could you do whatever we want for us? Nothing, nothing major, just whatever we want. Anything we ask, you do. That's the attitude that they have. There's a fundamental flaw in their thinking, I think, that reveals the pride that's in their hearts. And I would suggest that that fundamental flaw in their thinking is this idea. The idea that God exists for us rather than us existing for God. Self-centeredness is thinking that God exists for me rather than me for God. We are constantly, are we not, tempted to make ourselves the epicenter of the universe. You remember the story of Galileo in the early 1600s where he's coming to the realization that the universe is 
heliocentric, sun-centered, rather than geocentric, earth-centered. And he starts propounding this idea. He starts writing about it. And what does that get him? He gets pulled before the Roman Inquisition. And they condemn his teaching as heresy. And the man is literally sentenced to house arrest for the rest of his life for teaching that the sun is the center of the universe. We, I'm afraid, are just like those Roman inquisitors who insist that the wrong thing is the center of the universe. We make ourselves the center rather than the God who made it. We insist that everything else revolve around me. The Bible says that our lives are nothing but a vapor. You see a vapor rise up out of a teapot or something. You can see it for a moment and it's gone. There's nothing permanent about us as humans. We have, as it was said at the beginning of the year, what really could be considered a few minutes of life, a few minutes of of existence. And yet, for the brief time that we're here, we think that it's about us. Pride is self-centered. James and John made the mistake of thinking that God and their relationship with Jesus was primarily about them. Pride treats God like a vending machine. You put in your quarters and you select what you want and you press the button and you get what you want. Pride treats God like a fast food restaurant where I can have it my way, right away. Pride treats God like a 24-hour convenience store that's always open and always ready to give me what I want whenever I should have the desire for it. We see examples of this all around us. We see preachers on TV and on the radio telling us that we can name it and claim it to get this or that out of God. They're teaching a whole generation of people that God exists to make us wealthy, to make us happy, to give us not just the things that we need, but the things that we want too. In fact, he owes it to us. We're following him, aren't we? That's what James and John thought. Now, it would be easy for us to let ourselves off the hook in this area because chances are, You didn't come to church this morning. You didn't come to hear that kind of message. If you did, boy, I am sorry. (laughs) Because that's not where this is going. No, we're, we're, we're not thinking that way. We're not thinking that God exists to make us rich. But we do still have to ask ourselves the question, how does this show in my life, up in my life? How, in some way, does my heart sometimes say, God, I want you to do for me whatever I ask? Somewhere along the line, some of us, perhaps in our hearts, have gotten our, our role confused with God's. And we look to God primarily for what he can do for me and my agenda. And that the symptoms of that kind of thinking spread don't they? They spread to our relationships. Because if I can think that I have prioritized over God, then I'm certainly more important than anyone else around me. 
And so in my marriage and in my family and in my job and at my church, I see, all, I see people for what they can do for me rather than what I can do for them. If, that is a, if, that is a, a, if your heart echoes any of that, that is self-centered pride. We need to, to do our best to eradicate that from our lives. Jesus humors them, however, and lets them proceed to ask their question. Jesus says, okay, what do you want me to do for you? And so James and John go ahead with what they want. James and John, in anticipation of what they think is coming, in anticipation of seeing Jesus received as the glorious Israelite king and the restoration to prominence of the Jews, see for themselves an opening, a perfect opportunity. After all, these are the ones, they're the ones that have been with Jesus really since his earthly ministry has started, haven't they? They're the ones that have forsaken all to follow him. They're the ones who have been with him the most, have heard the most in-depth teaching, have seen him day in and day out. They've, they've literally lived with him. Wouldn't Jesus want this anyway? His, his two top brightest disciples sitting at his right hand and at his left in the kingdom? James and John were asking for the two places of greatest honor in the kingdom. Pride values status. James and John want, this is a, the, the way of speaking in, in biblical times, way of speaking, you're talking about the right hand or the left hand where the positions of the most authority and the most prominence and the most honor, second only to the king. That's what they wanted. Status and what they assumed to be an imminent kingdom was very important to Jesus' disciples. And instead of Je- in spite of Jesus' best efforts to prepare them for the difficulty that was about to transpire when they, re- when they reach Jerusalem, their pride instead blinds them to the grave reality that's going to meet them there. Jesus is going to be killed. They're going to be hunted. They're going to run for their lives. A proud heart values status. It values position, and we value status so much in our culture, don't we? We've got status symbols of the cars we drive, the homes we live in, the clothes that we wear. But as James and John demonstrate to us, the desire for status isn't the exclusive property of people who are wealthy or people who have money, because they didn't have anything. The desire for status is relative. We just like to have some sort of position. It doesn't have to be the top. It doesn't have to be the most. But we love having positions. And we love the influence. We love the way that people look at us when we have that position. People talk to me differently. People respect me more. We love status. Jesus' response to these two disciples' request for pride of place in the kingdom is, is blunt. Because he basically tells them, you 
have no idea what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. And then he asked him this question, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? Are you able to receive the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? Jesus used these two metaphors as a means of describing to his disciples what was about to happen in Jerusalem. The cup is often referred to in the Bible as symbolic of God's wrath being poured out on the wicked. Psalm 75 and verse 8 says this, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 17, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. The cup in the Bible is symbolic of God's wrath. And all of God's wrath against sinful mankind was about to be completely poured out to the very dregs on his son. Jesus says, is that something you think you can handle? Can you handle the baptism I'm about to experience? Baptism, as we've just seen last week, is the total immersion of a person in water And Jesus used that as a metaphor to tell them, I am about to be what could be characterized as completely immersed in suffering. Is that something that you think you can handle? They were wanting status. And Jesus says, something very different is going to happen. Your value system is completely out of whack. So Jesus asks them if they can handle that. And their glib response is what? We can't. Which reveals a third aspect or symptom of pride. Self-confidence. Pride is self-confident. Those two simple words, we can, emphasize the favorable self-assessment that these disciples have of themselves. They think they've got it together. They think everything's under control. Whatever it is that Jesus is referring to with the cup and the baptism, it's just going to be a bump in the road. We'll get past it quickly, and then we will be able to assume the place of position in the kingdom that we so obviously covet. And how does Jesus respond to them? Jesus responds to them by telling them that they will indeed have to undergo some suffering. But in doing so, he does not affirm to them that their suffering experiences will earn them anything. Jesus tells them, don't think that going through suffering, you're doing it all so that you can have this place of status. Don't put confidence in yourself. Don't go through the suffering and think that you can handle it because it's going to be about you in the end. It'll all work out. Jesus tells them instead that the places of honor are not for sale. They're not earnable. And he says he himself isn't even the one who's going to be determining those places of honor. Let me just note with that 
when Jesus says that he's, this is not for him to determine, it shows us, as several other places in the New Testament, it shows us the different roles that the members of Trinity play. Jesus says elsewhere that he is completely submitted to the will of his Father, God the Father. And that does not imply in any way that Jesus is inferior in any way to the Father. We uphold that Jesus is fully God, but they have different roles. And Jesus says, says my mission on earth is singular. The determination of who will sit at my le- le- right and left hand when I reign in the kingdom is not for me to decide, and it's not for you to worry about, and it's not for sale. And what Jesus is doing is this, one person says. The cup and the baptism prove not to be qualifying conditions at all. In other words, they prove not to be the things that one must get past in order to earn glory for oneself. They're not qualifying conditions at all, but rather a way of indicating that their whole conception of glory and the way it is to be achieved is misguided. Position and glory is not something that's for sale and it's something, something to be earned and something that we should be looking for. That's pride. And when we are too confident in our own abilities and have a misguided conception of glory, we think that glory is something that is to be achieved for ourselves and is ultimately attainable if we simply do the right things. That is self-confidence, and that is pride. Now, the rest of the disciples are going to reveal to us now a fourth symptom of pride. The Bible says in verse 41, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Pride is fourthly self-righteous. Why do I say that? Because we're indignant with James and John too, aren't we? You see, the indignant that these ten disciples are demonstrating toward James and John are hypocritical. I won't ask you to turn there, but if you look back at the previous chapter, in in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, it says this, They came to Capernaum, all the disciples. When he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. So they're traveling to Jerusalem, with all the events that are about to take place. They stop at a home to to rest for the night, and Jesus said, hey, you know, what was going on out there? And they're like, I don't know, you know, just, uh, we're just discussing things. Well, they were discussing which one of them was the greatest, and so what James and John have done here is they've, they've figured out a way to get Jesus' ear apart from the rest of the ten. So they've just been arguing about this. Who's the greatest? And James and John see this as a, as a golden opportunity to get Jesus by himself and say, Hey, Jesus, you know, will you do whatever we ask for? Do, do whatever we ask? Can you, can you do that for us? Hopefully the other disciples aren't in earshot. And then they hear it. And they are hypocritically indignant with James and John for wanting a place, for wanting to be the greatest. 
And I think for us as Christian people, self-righteousness is perhaps one of the greatest areas of pride that we struggle with. We constantly fight the battle of self-righteousness because we get confused, don't we? We understand that we have this righteous standing before Christ, a righteous standing that has been given to us, not earned. And so we have this righteous standing with Christ, and unfortunately, in me, I'm saying in me, I look around and say, well, why are you doing that? I wouldn't do that. And I forget that my, the righteousness that I have is a righteousness that is given to me, not a righteousness of my own creation. I am unrighteous. And any little bit of righteousness that is produced in my life is a testament to God's grace in me, not my own doing. And yet, we are constantly tend towards self-righteousness. That is a manifestation of pride. The fifth <clears throat> symptom of pride that we see here in Mark 10 is this. Pride values, and I have it in quotes, success. Pride values success. And we see this point not necessarily from what the disciples say, but from Jesus' response to the disciples. Look at what Jesus says in verses 42 to 44. Jesus calls them together. Okay, we need to regroup here. You need to get on the right page. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise... Excuse me, I've lost my... Uh, lost, exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What Jesus tells them there is, is look, you've got a worldly value of success. You have come up with a definition of what it means to be successful that is not in keeping with the mission of what I came here to do. Jesus says, I'm going to take your definition of success and I'm going to completely flip it around. Your definition of success needs to be redefined. Success isn't reaching a particular status or position. Success is not about achieving a sort of a standing with other people. Success isn't being respected in your community. Success isn't found in what you have. Take any notion that you have, it, that you have of success and pitch it. Because this is true success. Giving it all away to serve. And he says, look at me. That's what I'm doing. Pride has this crazy valuing of success, a definition that we've come up with, that we live by, that we spend our whole lives sometimes pursuing whatever success is in our mind, idolizing success. And wouldn't it be a terrible thing to realize that our standard and thus our lives were measured 
by a completely wrong thing. Success is service, not status, not position, not what people think of you, not even your own righteousness and the good things that you can do. Okay, so we pause and take a deep breath because it's getting heavy. And it's, and it's hard to look at because if you're being honest with yourself, right, you're seeing yourself in this. And if I'm being honest with myself, I'm saying, yeah, in some ways the world does revolve around me. In some ways, I do think God exists to fulfill my agenda. And in some ways, I do have a mistaken notion of success. And it, and it wounds me. So what's the answer? What is the solution to the pride that we've kind of put out on the table here this morning? What's, what's going to get us out of this mess? And the solution is simply this. The gospel. If we are going to free ourselves of our pride, then what we are going to have to do is give ourselves as, as Christians, as Christian people, wholly embracing the message of the gospel. What do we often do instead as the antidote to pride? We say, the message is over. I've shown you what pride, what pride looks like, and that's not what Christians are supposed to do, so don't do that. And you wrote down all the five points, and then you go and you don't do that. That would be a mistake. We would have missed the point of what Jesus is presenting to us in this passage if we, if we think that the answer to pride is ourselves. Because what can happen is, as I can say, look at how you see people that are conceited and boastful and proud. What do you think of those kind of people? You don't like them very much, do you? You don't want to be around them. They're kind of repugnant. They're annoying. You don't want to be like that. If you're proud, people will be thinking that about you. You don't want people to think that about you, do you? I don't want people... When I walk through the halls of this church saying, there's Matt, man, that guy is so conceited. So I'm not going to do that. If I do that, I am simply trading one form of pride for another. In other words, I haven't gotten rid of pride at all. I've just rooted pride even deeper in my heart. That's not what we're here to do this morning. And that's why... What Jesus' words to us and Jesus pointing the way to the gospel is so important. I don't want to fight self with self. I don't want to say that me is the answer to my me problem. That's ultimately self-defeating. It might be successful to a certain degree. You may be able to modify your behavior. But Christians aren't Christians because of behavior modification. Christians aren't Christians. We aren't Christians. We don't don't follow Christ because we just do the right stuff. That's not Christianity. That's self-help. 
Jesus is after something that goes far deeper than mere behavior modification. Jesus is after our hearts. And the answer to the problem of the human heart is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is simply this. Christ is the greatest treasure in the universe, not self. There is nothing more glorious than Christ. And yet we have forsaken Christ and pursued self and sin. And the mistaken notion that that is what is going to provide us with the ultimate happiness and satisfaction. We are enslaved to it. That situation puts us at odds with the holy God whose character demands that he acts justly with our sin and pour out his wrath upon us. We are rightly deserving of God's punishment for the self-centered patterns of thinking and behavior that we pursue. But the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ drank that full cup of God's wrath. And the punishment that we deserve for our self-righteousness and our self-centeredness and our status-seeking and our mistaken notions of success and whatever else you want to fill in the blank with, the wrath, the punishment was poured out on him instead of us. That is the good news of the gospel. And we can now be reconciled to God. It was said a couple of weeks ago that any time we sin... We're failing in some way to believe the gospel. And I think that is absolutely true. And the moment that I sin, and the moment that I exalt myself, in some way I am failing to believe the gospel. I am running back to the sin which Jesus died to save me from. I'm saying that my greatest joy and my greatest treasure is not to be found in Christ but it is in that sin. And for our purposes this morning, my greatest joy, my greatest treasure, my most fulfillment, that which will, give, that which will make me deem myself successful is to be found in me and what I can accomplish. That is idolatry that is as old as the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. When we are proud and when we... When we sin in that way, we are, I would like to suggest, idolizing our own significance. Pride is about self. It's about magnifying myself. It's about glorifying myself. It's about trying to achieve significance for myself. Is it not? That's what pride is. Trying to achieve significance for myself. And as such, pride is idolatry because it sets me up as the thing which can achieve that fulfillment and that significance. It is the thing that Adam and Eve fell for with Satan in the very beginning of the garden. Satan comes to them and says, you should have a share of God's glory. God doesn't want you to be, God doesn't want you to be happy. God has set up this boundary around you because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to have some of the glory that he has. He wants it all for himself. And Adam and Eve do what we do every day. They, 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 they disobeyed God and they looked for significance and meaning and happiness apart from him. There is no other source of, of significance or happiness or fulfillment. It doesn't exist. It's a lie. It's a myth. And yet we search for it 
by looking within. The gospel tells us that we can't do that. And so you say this morning, how does the gospel get me out of this? Because if I let go of myself the way you're asking me to, I don't have anything left. I'm all I've got. The gospel presents Jesus to you and says, take him. The gospel says, let go of yourself and take Jesus as your savior. Jesus says, do you want significance? You've got to look beyond yourself. You've got to look outside of yourself. Do you want forgiveness? Do you want atonement? Do you want peace? You're never going to find those things in you. You can only find them in me. In verse 45, Jesus says that he gave himself as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A ransom is a price that is paid to liberate a slave or a captive or property. And the Bible characterizes us, this is a perfect word for the Bible to use, a perfect word for Jesus to use, because the Bible characterizes you and I as slaves. We are absolutely slaves to sin. We are bound to sin. Sin is our master. We think by serving ourselves, that's the one thing that can free us. And the Bible tells us it's wrong. It will only enslave you. And as I said earlier, that slavery to sin results in death. It results in the wrath and punishment of, of a holy God. And yet Jesus himself, by the giving of his own life, is the price paid to ransom us, to free us. So we've got to look to Jesus as our Savior. He is a ransom. He frees us from the slavery to sin, the slavery to self. Jesus frees us from the punishment that we justly deserve from God. You've got to look to Jesus as your Savior. It's the only place that you are going to find the glory that you seek. You may say, isn't God being a little narcissistic there? I'm the one that's, that's supposed to have the glory. And I just want to suggest to you that the Bible presents God as the infinite being who is completely worthy of that kind of glory. He seeks his own glory because he's worthy of it. He's the only object in the universe that is worthy of complete adoration and awe and wonder. And the glorification of God unlike the glorification of other humans, does not come at our expense. That's the wonderful thing of the gospel. The gospel doesn't mean glorify God and you get nothing. The gospel says, give God the glory and in that you will receive everything. The glory that you seek is to be found in him. One person put it this way, God is the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and most loving act. Why? Because he is infinitely perfect. Because he is stuck with being beautiful. Because he cannot deny himself. We must deny ourselves in order to have him. If he denies himself, he strips us of the one thing that satisfies our souls forever. And he is the one reality in the universe for which we were made who will bring deepest 
and most ultimate satisfaction to our souls. You don't have the resources within you to get that. It's only found in the gospel. And so when we come to the gospel, and it takes humility to come to the gospel, because when you, when you believe the gospel, you are admitting certain things about yourself. You're admitting to God, I can't do it. You're admitting to God, I don't have hope inside of me. You're admitting to God, yeah, I guess I am a bad person. You're admitting all of those things to God. And yet you're finding forgiveness with God. And that forgiveness that we find in the gospel with Jesus as our Savior allows us, the last point, to follow Jesus as our model. The gospel presents Jesus as our model. And when you've given everything over to Jesus, when you've laid it all down and you've said, you know what? I, I'm going to stop pursuing self and all these other things. I'm going to stop pursuing my sin. I'm going to stop trying to create my own significance for my own self in this life. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to let you care for me. I'm going to believe that I could find no greater significance in the fact that you've given your very life for me. When we do that, and when you've done that, when you've traded yourself for the gospel, it frees you. It frees you to pursue the radical discipleship that Jesus asks of us. And make no mistake about it, it is radical. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to give up everything and follow me. Do you want to follow me? You're going to have to follow my example. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking a towel and washing his disciples' feet. He shouldn't have to do that. But he did. Because he puts self behind. And we sometimes think, I shouldn't have to serve that way. I shouldn't have to give myself sacrificially. I don't mind giving sacrificially to someone who appreciates it, but what about all the people that don't? Because let's face it, most of the people that you serve sacrificially probably aren't going to appreciate it. doesn't matter. Because you're not in it for the glory. Because the glory is Christ, and you're attached to Him, and you lose nothing. In fact, you could give up every bit of shred of status and success and confidence and and self-righteousness that you have. You can give it all away because you've got glory with Christ. Your significance and my significance is not internal. It's rooted in the fact that our significance is found and that we have a Christ who died on a cross for us. That is real significance. And that is why the gospel is the antidote for pride. I'm not saying just stop being proud. What I'm saying is trade your pride for something far more glorious. Why is pride so morally repugnant to us? Why is it so morally repugnant to God? The title of this sermon you notice, is identity theft. And the reason I gave it that title is because at the end of the day, the the exaltation of self, pride, is theistic identity theft. 
It's glory that belongs to God that, we've tr- that we try and take for ourselves. We've gone in undercover in the middle of the night. We do it every day. I do it every day. I do it every day. And I try to steal God's glory for my own. When the Bible clearly says in Psalm 42, 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And I suggest to you that we cannot meaningfully do what we have come here to do this morning, which is engage ourselves in the worship of God. We cannot come and meaningfully do what we've come to do this morning if we regard pride in our hearts. Because some of us have come here with God's ID in our wallet or in our purse. We've stolen His identity. We've stolen the glory that rightfully belongs to Him. And so what I would like to see us do this morning is I would like to see us forsake our quest for significance and glory in ourselves for something greater, more permanent, and more beautiful, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we walk out of here every Sunday morning, we leave things behind on the floor as they're picking up the chairs. Pencils, cups, Bibles, jackets, all kinds of stuff gets left behind. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing if when we walked out of here this morning, we left our pride behind too? Because we had gotten a hold of the glory of Christ and the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, it's a difficult thing for us, even as Christian people, to let go of ourselves. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that there's glory that's far greater beyond ourselves. I pray that you'd help us to hold on to the hope that we have in the gospel of Christ, who came to ser- not to, ser- to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.